Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker with me, Alex Andreu. Another perilous week stretches ahead both domestically and internationally. Helping me scan the horizon, I have Yasmin Serhan. Morning, Yasmin. Good morning, Alex. We last spoke two weeks ago when we were discussing incredibly whether White House analysts were right and Putin was about to launch an invasion, which which he was denying at the time. It feels like a very long time ago. I was just going to say that feels like it's kind of, yeah, geez. I mean, right? the end of that it week was, was just two like... two weeks ago yeah. today. Incredible. What has surprised you about how events have turned out? I think just the swiftness. I mean, even that, like thinking back to that conversation, I thought that happened months ago. I, I think, you know, it, it was one thing... For us to, you know, think, oh, maybe Putin will invade the eastern parts, you know, the Donbass and, and sort of those those breakaway regions of Ukraine. But quite another to think that, you know, Kiev would be bombarded. I mean, the fact that, you know, in the span of two weeks, more than a million Ukrainians have fled their country and, you know, many Russians are, are attempting to do the same it's a little surreal, actually. You know, I hadn't really thought about how much had happened so quickly. But mm. now that yeah. now that you even say that, even just thinking about the last time we spoke, really. Yeah, it's just so much has happened so quickly. And I kind of shudder to think what it would be like if we spoke again in two more weeks. And yeah, to, to think about what could happen then. The expectation at the time from our discussion was that if you did decide to invade... Putin would just sweep over the Ukraine in a matter of days. And that hasn't happened, has it? It hasn't. No, I mean, the, the resolve of the Ukrainian people and of the Ukrainian government, of course, and their military has been just absolutely incredible to witness. It's obviously, I mean, you know, looking at just the, the dire situation, I think it feels like a, a Russian victory hasn't happened. But I think there's, you know, a lot of wariness around the world. And I know this is true of in D.C. too, that, you know, kind of the contingency plans can Kind of being made about you know what what happens what you know do, do that does the West support some kind of insurgency is there some sort of government in exile out of Poland I mean I think the people are starting to think about the sort of end game scenario however for the moment you're absolutely right you know Ukrainians are, are holding strong you know Kiev is still is still standing it's still Ukrainian so but you know it's an incredibly dire situation and and we're expecting potentially millions of more refugees to be fleeing the country there does feel like there is a sort of grim inevitability that by throwing enough at it eventually Russia will overcome whatever resistance there is and that is i think down to the fact that the world has realized they have no issues with flattening places that they can't take and we've seen that quite a lot in the southern regions there also seems to me to have been a slight shift of objectives in that by having those columns advancing towards kiev and other northern targets it seems to me that the initial drive was to sweep over all of the Ukraine. And recently, it seems to me that the focus has shifted much, much more to taking basically the coast on the south mm. and southeast to basically cut the Ukraine off from the sea. And then Putin can claim that as a, a sort of victory to his people, say that's what he was always planning to do and start, I guess, plotting his next move to eat the next chunk of the Ukraine. About 30,000 refugees have applied to come to the UK. That's out of one and a half million people 
who have basically made it into neighboring countries. That, by most estimates, is a fraction of internally displaced people because there are millions of Ukrainians that are leaving the south for the north as well. So a a tiny fraction of that, 30,000 people, have applied to come to the UK. 50 permissions have been granted, 5-0. The government is saying that to move faster would risk degrading public support. What does that mean, do you think? I mean, that's just, it's just a start to kind of hear that number because, you know, I was I was in a press conference over the weekend that the Moldovan government had put on for foreign journalists. And they were telling us how they've taken in 113,000 people, 89,000 of which are Ukrainian, the equivalent of 3% of the population. And, you know, we know yeah. Moldova is it's not that big of a country. It's not that rich of a country. They've thankfully been receiving, I think, a lot of international support. You said 50 versus 89,000. I mean, that's just, yeah, I mean, it, it clearly, it suggests that, there is an aversion here to to bringing in immigrants, refugees, which I, I mean, I, I would love to see more polling on this, and perhaps you have, Alex, but I just kind of find it hard to, be, to believe that that would be the case, because it seems to me, at least, that there has been just such widespread support for the Ukrainian people. Now, whether that extends to wanting to open, you know, countries wanting to open their doors to them, perhaps that's, you know, a, a different level. But I think given the sort of outpour of sympathy from from Western countries, the the extent of the protests that we've seen, people, you know, queuing up to provide, you know, humanitarian aid and and, and donate stuff that that are going to be taken over to to help people. I mean, I I just kind of, it beggars belief that this country would be able to take more than than 50 people, that they would kind of be able to match some of their European partners. Well, The Sun has an interview with Priti Patel in which she says, and I quote, in response to the desperation I saw with my own eyes at the Polish border two days ago, I'm urgently escalating our response to the growing humanitarian crisis. I am now investigating the legal options to create a humanitarian route. This means anyone without ties to the UK fleeing the conflict in Ukraine will have a right to come to this nation. No numbers are mentioned in that. Do you think the government actually has a point that people are sort of supportive of refugees in principle, but if a lot of Ukrainian people showed up in your small town or your neighbourhood and a Ukrainian supermarket opened on the corner, that might be a different story. Well, I just because of out of my own curiosity, I've just looked up trying to find some polling. And there was a recent poll out of YouGov from late February and then again from late February to early March that found that support mm-hmm. for Britain's taking in Ukrainian refugees has actually increased to, to 76%, which I think, you know, for a country where obviously immigration was such a big issue, you know, during the, the Brexit referendum, I think that's that's pretty significant. So maybe the government is lagging behind public sentiment, actually, on this. I, I think they may be underestimating the extent to which Brits would be willing to help. Look, it's it's one thing to, you know, put the Ukrainian flag up near Parliament. You know, I was walking around Westminster over the weekend. I saw the Ukrainian flag everywhere. That's wonderful to see. I'm sure, you know, it, it would hearten a lot of Ukrainians to, to see that, that there is that level of solidarity 
But that's not, you know, that that's symbolic, right? I mean, this is kind of putting your money where your mouth is effectively, like showing your willingness to help by taking people in. And like, I think the thing that people often forget about refugees, people don't want to leave their homes, right? Like people want to go home. And I and I can imagine that every Ukrainian person that has had to, to leave their homes, and in many cases, their families behind, do want to go back, but they also want to be safe. They also want to live. And, and I think it's, we, we need to see people coming in is sort of, you know, welcoming them into our societies, our communities, knowing that they're bringing in something positive and hopefully hoping that one day that, you know, their homes will be able to be safe enough to return back. And this isn't to say that that Ukrainians should be brought in on a limited time either. You know, I think this country, obviously I'm speaking as, as someone who, who quite in a rather privileged position just got to come here out of choice and, and to work here, you know, that this country is made all the better for, for the people who, who come here because they love it. And I think, you know, Ukrainians would obviously be an incredibly positive addition. There, there is a, a substantial Ukrainian population. I have many Ukrainian friends who live here and, and who are, who are just absolutely fantastic. So, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to think and would hope that the British government is perhaps underestimating British hospitality and, and Britain's ability to 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 welcome people in, in, especially the fact because we're in this crisis, because we're seeing the images and videos coming out of Ukraine. Yeah. And, you know, I hope the polling stays that way. I mean, my, my worry, to be honest, is that there is a, a Putin calculation below that, which I think might be right. And that is that Western media has a limited attention span, that as the days turn into weeks, the media will lose interest, and with that, people will lose interest, the journalists will return from the borders, and the invasion of Ukraine will become another Afghanistan. Where is that on our news at the moment? Moving to the flip side of welcoming refugees, we have been very welcoming to Russian oligarchs, I think, for quite a few decades. There's a joint investigation by the Bureau of Investigative Journalists and the Daily Mail today that finds almost 100 Russian oligarchs that have been sanctioned by the US and the EU, have not been sanctioned by Britain, despite many of them owing property in the UK and having children in our private schools. Truss is making a statement to Parliament at half three today, Monday. She's expected to announce more sanctions. Why do you think the UK has gone really fast on some levels, like SWIFT, like you know, economic sanctions, and really sluggish on the subject of sanctioning individuals? It's a good question. I, I wish I had the answer. I mean, there's probably a sense, if I'm being generous, there's probably a sense that, you know, taking on action like like SWIFT and 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 those kind of broader level sanctions have more of an impact on kind of Russia more broadly. That said, we know full well that if the aim, of course, is is to hit Vladimir Putin specifically, then that means hitting his money. And and often that that is, you know, that means hitting the oligarchs that are close to him, many of whom are based here. So, I mean, you know, I, I've seen arguments where there's like, you know, the whole point of having these sanctions is to kind of impose them bit by bit with the hope that, you know, the threat of more to come would limit further action. That clearly hasn't been the case. I mean, Putin is already threatening, you know, nukes. So... <laughs> I I don't I don't know what might trigger further action if you know that doesn't. A, a lot of ministers were doing the media rounds over the weekend 
saying this thing that absolutely drove me nuts. They they were all going, we have the rule of law in this country, which I find just firstly bizarre and secondly incredibly offensive, as if countries like Germany or the US, which has a really complicated legal system considering the federal structure, as if they don't have the rule of law, <laughs> as if they're ruled by some dictator who can just say this is going to happen. I mean, you know, considering we left the EU be- because we found the rules-based approach and their sort of technocratic style of government too onerous, is it true that there, you know, that that the sluggishness is driven by some? dogmatic respect for due process in this country that just doesn't exist in other Western democracies? Yeah, I don't know about that argument. I mean, it's, it's, and it's, it also kind of treats as though, you know, that that the oligarchs who, who live here, you know, have, have, have gotten here much in the same way everyone else has gotten here. So they haven't been able to effectively, you know, buy their way in, into the, into the country Uh and and even onto citizenship and and stuff like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a bit of an, that's a very interesting, I guess I'll say, way of, of framing it. What is true is that we don't have the framework that other countries have for imposing such sanctions because we didn't put it into place. You know, other countries put that framework into place after the annexation of Crimea in 2014. The UK didn't. It may be true that we are not now in a position to move as fast as others because of the legal framework within which we work. But that gives the Conservative government that we've had for the last 10 years, 12 years, a free pass on why they didn't put the the right legal framework in place in the first place. You know, after the annexation of Crimea, after it became blindingly obvious that Putin was going to be a problem. After all, the government is telling us every hour on the hour that they were the first ones who knew this invasion was going to happen and warned everyone months ago. So if you know this invasion is going to happen months ago, why didn't you put a system for accepting refugees in place? Why didn't you put in a system for sanctioning individuals in place? They had all the time in the world and apparently all the intelligence. You know, I I think to your point, and I think it's right, it's like there was just a lack of preparation, which, you know, if we've been talking about the potential of this sort of thing since since the end of last year and since the beginning of this year, there there really isn't that much of an excuse. It was interesting, though, to see that... um, Boris Johnson actually had a, an op-ed in the New York Times of all places, and he set out a six-point plan for what he believes that he and kind of European partner, Western partners, I should say, should do. And and the third point in that plan was maximizing economic pressure on Putin. He said, you know, they have to go further on SWIFT, but also giving our law enforcement agencies unprecedented powers to peel back the facade of dirty Russian money in London. You know, he literally said, we must go after the oligarchs. So it it is interesting to see that There, there appears to be a shift. Maybe it's, you know, the Tory party finally seeing that actually inaction on this could really come to hurt them. And it seems like it's already been a pretty a pretty strong attack line from labor, whether it penetrates, you know, kind of the broader population going forward, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's, you know, I-, I guess, better late than never. I don't know. I mean, it, 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 it should have, you're right that it, a lot of these preparations for refugees, for dirty money, these things should have been in place a long time ago. And I, th- I think the government will have to answer for that sort of thing. But it does also sound like 
you know, that they're, they're trying to make it seem as though this is a priority now. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the Slow Newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so on a tangential but related matter, the Yevgeny Lebedev story seems to be blowing up. The Sunday Times yesterday reported that Johnson argued for Lebedev's peerage against the advice of the security services, and Robert Peston confirmed that story. If I mean, if this is true, the implications are huge, aren't they? Could this be the story that kind of links everything, the lobbying scandal, the the cash for peerages, Partygate, the Ukraine invasion. Could this be the story that kind of links the corruption, exceptional disregard for rules that flows from the top of Johnson Johnson's administration? Potentially. I mean, I think if someone links them, right? I think, um, you know, I was I was having a chat with friends about this over the weekend because we were talking about we kind of almost forgotten that Partygate was a thing. Because, you know, rightly, this has just taken precedence. It's just so much bigger. And in a weird way, it's, you know, we're, obviously, as I just said, we, we have Boris Johnson writing in the New York Times. Boris Johnson's going to be welcoming leaders of Canada and the Netherlands. He's positioning himself as, as kind of a, a leader in, in this crisis, a leader in Europe you know, alongside his allies addressing this. And, you know, that that's a far different picture than the one that we've seen of, you know, Boris, the party star, right? Like it's, um, so in, in that sense, I, yeah, I mean, if that connection is made, but I, I think it will require the connection being made for the public. I bet you they're now hoping the police investigation outcome is published sooner rather than later, so that it is, it sort of goes under all this, Ukraine situation rather than in two months' time when perhaps there will be more more bandwidth in the media to deal with it. On that Trudeau and Mark Rutte visit, Johnson is doing a, a, a sort of joint press conference with them. You have mentioned that he's been on a sort of offensive of writing in loads of foreign press, in in uh, US press, but also Le Figaro. And, uh, he gave I, interviews, I think, with, I think, to a couple of yeah, yeah. foreign journalists as well, yeah. Do you think this marks an end of that bizarre pivot to the Indo-Pacific that the the Conservative Party seemed to be so obsessed with, and that was effectively the 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 engine of Brexit, and the engine of a of a hard Brexit. I don't think it's the end, and and I'm thinking mostly because you know when you think of things like AUKUS and and you know sort of China and and kind of those other still pressing issues. I don't necessarily think it's the end, but I do think all attention is rightly being focused on Ukraine, and and for that it really. I think the, the the focus and the emphasis then has to be on coordinating with with the United States and and European partners and and NATO allies. So yeah, I mean whether I, I don't certainly don't think that you know <laughs> pivoting pivoting towards Asia, even talking about the th- I mean even China. I mean you know China is being kind of pointed to as a potential mediator in these talks. You know as as 
countries try to figure out, well, who is best positioned? You know, it can't be Belarus anymore because Belarus is, is not a neutral territory. China, to an extent, you could argue, is, is much closer to, to Russia. and but, but it does have an interest, like I think many other countries around the world, for this war to end. So, you know, I, I do think it, it's not the necessarily the end of, of, of anything. I think, you know, that there are other interests, there, there are other actors at play. But, but I think necessarily in this immediate moment, as you say, when everyone is focused on this, everything else has just been put on the back burner, hasn't it? I just get the feeling that, you know, there, there's a merciless inevitability about geography. And the current crisis has really driven that home. You might be interested in, you know, moving the UK to the Indo-Pacific in your mind, but geographically, your fate is still tied to Europe. Europe is your closest ally. Europe is your biggest market. You wrote a, a very interesting piece about the cultural boycotts. And I must admit, I've been really surprised at how prominent a place cultural boycotts, including sport, have been in this crisis. What's your view? Is it beginning to get a bit silly? Well, I mean... I think this, particularly the sports boycotts, I wrote this in the piece, I think they have the potential to have more of an impact than people may realize. Because, you know, when you think of cultural boycotts, you know, the fact that the Formula One Grand Prix was was stripped from Russia, the fact that they can't hold the Champions League final, in virtually every aspect, Russia has kind of been shunned from the sporting world. And, and we're seeing that too in, in the world of culture. I mean, they, they won't be competing in Eurovision, for example. A, a number of museums and opera houses have put out their own statements and and taking their own actions on this. I think for sport in particular, you know, because I've written about how so much of, of Vladimir Putin's kind of macho nationalist image that he's put out to the world has been kind of rooted in this sort of, you know, this image of strength. We see him, you know, riding horseback shirtless. We see him playing his beloved judo. He was stripped, of course, of his honorary presidency of, of judo's international governing body. We see him racing cars. And we've also seen that, you know, the Russian state has been very invested in ensuring that its athletes are the best in, in in international platforms, so much so that they had a years-long state-sponsored doping scandal. I mean, these, like the Olympics, these are, are platforms that, that are really useful to Putin to project his image of strength, not just to the world, but also domestically. So I think it's quite right that if he's going to sort of, you know, behave outside the bounds of the international rules-based order, it's quite right that he be denied the, the privilege then of, of getting to sort of, you know, be part of, of these international fora, you know, like to, to effectively promote that strength on the world stage. I think those are important. I think they're understandable. That said, I've seen a litany of other, you know, actions that have been taken. The one that kind of sticks to mind is the International Cat Federation announcing that they're not going to be allowing Russian cats at their events. Look, I think, <laughs> I, 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 I think where I fall on this is I understand and and I think it's 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 admirable that virtually every organization under the sun it seems wants to make clear their solidarity with the Ukrainian people. I think that's quite right. But but I also think some of these things like the cat thing do kind of border on parody a little bit. And and I will say that I think what's very important because we know that Putin's narrative to the Russian people when it comes to these sanctions is that, you know, the West is doing this because they hate the Russian people. They hate you. And, and I think it is really important. And, you know, 
I think leaders do say this, and obviously it's hard to kind of penetrate, I think, that the Russian sphere, especially because so many media have been forced to leave the country. It's really important to make sure that the measures that we take do not target Russian people simply because they're Russian. There needs to be a bit of thought behind them. Banning Russia from the Olympics, quite right for the reasons I set up before. Banning Russian cats, frankly, I don't think that's going to you know, give Putin pause when it comes to his decisions in Ukraine. Finally, on a completely different subject, this week marks exactly two years since COVID-19 was declared a global pandemic by the World Health Organization. Is the speed with which it has dropped out of the news completely quite surprising? I, I Before we recorded, I checked the seven-day average in the UK of deaths from COVID, mm. and it is still 117. So it's still in triple digits as of yesterday. That's the seven-day average to avoid the sort of peaks and troughs of individual weekdays. In August 2020 and June 2021, it had gone down to single digits, the seven-day average. Have we settled for quite a high level of endemicity and deaths, do you think? Oh, I mean, it's been stunning just how quickly it's dropped. And, you know, I, I think it was building up to it, right? I mean, we, 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 we got rid of all our restrictions, um, you know, e- even isolation. You know, it, the fact that Ukraine happened to coincide when we were sort of, you know, quote unquote, learning to live with COVID, I think, I think it accelerated what was probably going to happen anyway. I mean, you're right that I think we, we as a society have just kind of come to terms with a certain amount of, you know, cases and and a certain amount of death. We've just kind of accepted that this is, you know, this is what living with COVID uh, looks like. But, But I think Ukraine has accelerated by just pushing it off of off of the headlines completely because you know if, if Ukraine weren't happening perhaps we would be reading about the you know more people with long COVID and, and you know the, the impacts perhaps we'd be reading about you know the the people with compromised immune systems who who kind of now just have to live a very different life to the rest of us who are you know going back and sort of resuming normalcy as it were but no I've been stunned by by how quickly and, and it's going to feel weird come Friday when we mark this anniversary and suddenly you know the story that has been so dominant in our lives is still there. And I think it's still important for us to pay attention to, but it's no longer dominant. And I think even if you told us that, even if someone were to tell us a month ago that this would have happened, I think I would have been shocked. And that's the end of this edition of Start Your Week. Yasmin Sirhan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. If you found this podcast useful, then you can help support us on the funding platform Patreon from just £2 a month. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Every donation keeps us going and we really appreciate your help. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andre with Yasmin Sirhan. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.